You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. So I'm Dr. Christopher uh, Moran, an associate professor of U.S. national security in the Department of Politics and International Studies at Warwick University, also a guest consultant at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Trevor McCriskin, an Associate Professor of Politics in the same department, uh, Department of Politics and International Studies at Warwick University. Trevor uh, has written um, extensively on U.S. foreign policy and U.S. politics. He is the author of two large monographs, one American history and contemporary Hollywood film, the second American exceptionalism and the legacy of Vietnam US foreign policy since 1974. Um, He is currently working on uh, a new book manuscript on drones, uh, drone warfare. Um, He's trailered some of his ideas and thoughts on drones in, in, in the academic journals Survival and International Affairs. Uh, and that's going to be the uh, the subject of today's podcast. So welcome, Trevor. Hi, Chris. Hi. Um, let Let's kick this off with some um, some some kind of basic stuff. So, what are drones, and what are they being used for? Okay, so drones are a, a sort of popular name for unmanned aerial vehicles. So these are basically aircraft that uh, are remote controlled and uh, can fly at very high altitudes and are used mostly for reconnaissance. They're used to, um, to survey large areas, um, either to track individuals or to, to keep an eye on, on areas that need um, large-scale surveillance over them. The advantage that they have over manned aircraft is that they can stay in the air much, much longer, um, and, uh, and you can have constant surveillance, basically, um, of, of uh, individuals. Um, who are suspected of any number of things, um, but what particularly interests me is is not not so much just the surveillance uh, aspect of of drone usage by the Obama administration in the United States, but particularly the weaponized drones that it uses um, that have been used uh, in the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, also in in the Libyan conflict, um, but probably more controversially and. Um, 
this is where the, the sort of point of my work is, is focused upon, uh, in the so-called targeted killing campaign against suspected terrorists, um, which has been aimed at uh, terrorist suspects in, um, in Pakistan, in Yemen, and Somalia uh, in, in particular. And uh, so that's uh, you know using using drones to track individuals, and then uh, they have various missiles uh, attached to them that can be launched against targets. And uh, this has proved a very uh, popular, shall we say, um, mm. way of the Obama administration dealing with the threat of terrorism. Mm. When when did drones start being used? What's the timeline here? Uh, what's the chronology? When did they start being used by? the Pentagon, the CIA, at, at, at the request of, of policymakers right. and Obama. So as far back as the 80s, there were drones in existence that were being used for surveillance. Um, the Israelis in particular, I think, were using drones drones back in that period. But the weaponized drones, the more modern sort of usage of them, um, really began during the Bush administration. Um, and I think from 2004 onwards, you get drone strikes, so the weaponized versions of drones being used by the, the Bush administration. Um, Bush had relatively limited use of them throughout his whole presidency, um, just 40-odd strikes within mm. Pakistan. Um, during the first year of the Obama administration, uh, he mm. used drones more frequently for targeted killings, over 50 strikes in his first year, and then that went up to a, a high in his second year in office, over 120 strikes just within Pakistan. Um, the numbers have fallen away since then, but it's it's been a consistent usage, uh, particularly in Pakistan, where the CIA runs the program, and then in other territories um, such as uh, Somalia and Yemen, where the the Pentagon has control of of drone usage. Um, so it's become very much a centerpiece of Obama's counterterrorism policy, and this idea of targeted killing, um, identifying individuals or small groups of individuals. That are suspected of either planning or mm. um, about to carry out a terrorist activity against a, a U.S. interest or a U.S.-related interest. Um, that this has become a, a, a very commonplace aspect of Obama's um, counterterrorism policy, and one that seems um, almost to resolve a lot of the questions that were raised about what Bush was doing, particularly in, in response to the the seizure and capture. Of suspected terrorists and their interrogation, um, Obama has ended that that uh, process largely because obviously there was a lot of controversy around the use of torture methods, um, CIA renditions, you know, sort of black ops prisons, that sort of thing. Mm. All of that was um, by executive order ended by Obama at the very beginning of his presidency. What he now seems to have in place instead is a policy of of identifying individuals that are a threat, tracking them using drone technology and then in in many cases using lethal force to eradicate that threat um, but that probably raises all sorts of moral issues perhaps that, mm. that make some people very uncomfortable yeah C can you just unpack for us the, the advantages you know why why are drones being increasingly used I mean to use the case study of, of, of the Obama administration mm. why 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 is the White House turning more and more and more to drones? I think what they find attractive about them is is their their sort of precision um, in terms of the, uh, the the cameras that they carry, extremely high resolution, very able to gain a great deal of um, of detail in what they're looking at. They can linger over targets for a very very long period of time. 
um, so that the, the drone operators who are largely based back in the United States are able to see on their video screens um, very close detail of what individuals are doing, perhaps what they're reading. Um, and so it's, it enables um, individuals to be tracked and to be watched in ways that would be much more difficult using um, you know, using in sort of people on the ground to, to track them or, or other technologies that maybe could be used. So it's highly attractive in that respect. More, um, is there more watching going on than, than killing? There is, I think, more watching going on. What we tend to hear about is when the lethal strikes mm. occur. Um, but drones are being used not just by government, but by a lot of um, other organisations The the Federal Aviation Authority in the United States uh, toward the end of last year issued a very large number of um, licenses to companies mm. to use drones. Um, some of that is for surveillance, they're sort of you know more mobile obviously than CCTV um, and so they've been used, increasingly being used by um, sort of private security companies, that sort of thing, and the police are beginning to, to look at drone technology as well. Um, and there are commercial uses that are being talked about, many of which make people giggle rather, because the idea that Amazon is um, experimenting with drones mm -hmm. for the delivery of, of your book packages and, uh, and also that Domino's Pizza uh, and I think various other pizza companies are, are, are looking at the possibility of um, rather than having an individual riding around on a, on a motorbike that you'll have a drone delivering your pizza to you before too long. Um, but uh, So they may become very commonplace in our everyday lives within a few years from now. Um, but that in some ways is a little disconcerting because would we be able to tell the difference between a drone that was just going to deliver you a package versus mm. a drone that was was actually um, you know well, well maybe watching you but also potentially mm. weaponized and it could well be that um, you know police forces may end up with weaponized drones it's just a whole tranche of kind of questions that yeah. arise from that I think and I think we we worry about the technology um, becoming the driver of what happens in policy rather than the other way around mm. and um, there's certainly a lot of fear, probably driven by some of the, the sort of um, fictional accounts that we have of what the future might look like. I mean, the Terminator films always come to mind, I think, that um, if the, the drone technology continues to expand and increase in the way that it has done, and the level of, of computer um, controls over what the drone can do, um, that you, you know, I think people fear a future where you're going to have something along the lines of Terminator where the machines take over. Mm. Um, that seems quite extreme to think that and maybe a bit laughable but um, if you think of the level of development we've had up to this stage it's maybe not that far out of the bounds of reality that we may have something like that down the line um, you know at the moment the US is is the country that's using weaponized drones that's not going to stay the same mm. for too long you know other countries are certainly interested in in having that same level of technology um, and you can see potentially the wars of the future as, you know, being much more um, remotely fought. Now one of the attractions of that, for, and one of the reasons the Obama administration likes to use drones, is because if you've got um, an unmanned vehicle going over a very dangerous area, either a, a city that's occupied by um, hostile forces or perhaps, as is often the case in, in northern Pakistan, into, re into areas that would be very difficult to access on the ground, um, you're able to 
to get to targets that you you would find much more difficult to acquire if you were using other forms of of attack. Um, so that makes it attractive because you can do things that you couldn't necessarily do with conventional forces. Um, but it's it's also um, thought of as being attractive because you can single out individuals rather than having your sort of traditional airstrikes which maybe take out quite large areas um, and therefore have a lot of collateral damage, potential civilian casualties, etc. The argument for drones, for drone strikes, is that the missiles that are carried on board coupled with the level of um, reconnaissance technology enables very precise strikes to the point where you can just take out a single individual as they walk away from a car mm. rather than having to take the car out and maybe some other buildings around it or whatever. So that makes it very attractive. Um, Precision is, is a common theme here and obviously that mm. that argument is, is routinely deployed by the Obama administration but often that's not what we hear coming out of newspapers and websites from, mm. from, from mm. Pakistan. There's a lot of talk of collateral civilian damage. Yeah. Would, you, would you care to elaborate on, on that? Yeah, there are certainly... Right? Who's telling the truth? Well, I mean, the, the, see, the CIA and, and other elements of the Obama administration have claimed that um, civilian casualties are extremely low, in fact, at zero for, for quite long periods of time. They argued that, that there were no civilian casualties. Um, one of the problems we've got is that a lot of these claims are not very ver very easily verified, mm -hmm. um, particularly when they're happening in remote regions, which, as I've pointed out, are quite difficult to access. Um, you have the very official kind of view coming from the United States on the one hand, saying, no, it's very precise and clean and, you know, we, we just took out the enemy. Um, whereas those on the ground are obviously then saying, well, that's not what happened. Look, you know, with the X, Y, Z has happened. But it's quite difficult for independent verification to take place. So there are uh, organisations that are trying to um, account for the number of drone attacks and to, um, to give a fuller account of what, what level of mm. casualties there might be in terms of civilians in particular. Um, but it's very difficult for them to do that with any kind of level of accuracy that can be verified and accepted as being mm. the case. So, and also, you know, that's, that's complicated further, particularly in Pakistan, um, by the fact that it is the CIA that's running mm. the operations. And although um, over the last couple of years, the, Bush, the, sorry, the Obama administration has issued quite a lot of detail of what the Pentagon is doing um, outside of Pakistan with drones um, and the targeted killing campaigns in Yemen, in particular, um, what we've not got very much information about is the CIA operation in Pakistan, which was completely denied for a long mm. time and is now acknowledged, but largely secret still. And so it's even harder to verify what's happened there. Um, we tend not to get so many official statements coming out about who has been killed, why they've been killed. Um, there will be anonymous CIA officials who will issue some, you know, we've just hit the number three target or the number four target. Um, but we only have their say for that. Obviously, mm. we don't know necessarily whether these individuals really were as high up the scale um, as as is claimed. And some of the research that's been done um, by think tanks in the US suggests that quite a lot of the people that have been killed by drone attacks have not been particularly high-ranking members of Al-Qaeda or its associated groups. 
and that um, you know this is perhaps quite problematic. There have been a few very high-level leaders who have been killed, and it's been verified on both sides that that's occurred. But the the majority of those that are being hit um, are lower-level mm. operatives, um, or in some cases just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm. And there's some very interesting accounting that goes on. Um, within the Obama administration, within the CIA and the Pentagon, over um, who has been killed and what role they were playing. Mm. And it's thought that if you happen to be a male, and you happen to be between the ages of sort of 18 and about 45, and you were in an area where suspected terrorists were operating or were, were housed, that you were probably in league with them. And therefore, you get, you'll get counted not as a civilian casualty, but as a um, an Al Qaeda or associated mm. group casualty. Mm. Um, this seems an awful lot like some of the accounting that occurred during the Vietnam War, where the kill count was very important mm. to the um, the Nixon administration, especially. Um, but it was hard to tell whether somebody was Viet Cong or not. Mm. But if they were dead, they mm. were. Mm. If they were in a certain place, you know, mm. so I think there are real issues about that. That these these sort of death statistics mm. are being used as measures of success, Measure of success yeah. um, and that the verifiable, you know, how verifiable those are, um, is really open to question. You're you're writing a book on drones. Mm. Just to follow up on a few things you've been saying, you're writing a book on drones. Um, where do you get your information from? I mean, presumably. Certainly, current drone policy would be exempt from freedom of information mm-hmm. legislation, mm-hmm. and I can't imagine the CIA is willingly mm-hmm. declassifying mm-hmm. drone material no. of, of, of the recent history. I mean, there have been um, some documents have been leaked. A lot, a lot of the reliance here has to be on the work of journalists, actually, to, to try to get material out. Um, but on the other, on the other side of it, there has been an increased uh, sort of acknowledgement by the Obama administration. That people want to know a bit more. They feel like this is, you know, there, there has been some quite heavy criticism of the degree of secrecy around the drone campaign. I mean, Obama didn't even mention it mm. for the first few years of his his presidency, um, and Bush. then only in passing. Bush never really talked about yeah. it very much either, um, and very few people within the administration did. When they did come out with it, it was just to, to kind of say, yeah, okay, you know, this is happening, but it's highly justifiable and, and what have you. We've had a lot more come out in the last couple of years, largely in response, I think, to the criticisms, especially in the media, mm. um, but also from human rights groups like Human Rights Watch. Mm. And so there's obviously material that they're publishing. There are various um, organisations that are, are, are holding what you might call drone watches mm. just to see what's being done and to, to try to look at media reports not just in the US but around the world um, that claim that strikes have occurred that um, try to to keep count of the number of times that public officials will let slip that there was a drone attack or that you know a anonymous um, mm. individual will, will announce that drones have been used um, what they tend to focus on is the targeted killing because drones are being used a lot, they have been used a lot in, in, as I say, the Afghan war, in the Iraq war, while that's still going on now with the campaign against Islamic State. Um, drones are part of the weaponry that, that the United States is, is utilising. Mm. Um, but 
it's really it's the targeted killing campaign that is more controversial and that is is the the one that's more shrouded in mystery despite the administration having issued you know there there have been various speeches given by individuals within the administration within the CIA within the Pentagon um Obama himself gave a major speech at the National Defence University in May of last year where he he and he said that um, the policy had now been codified, um, that a presidential policy guidance had been written and signed off by the president, um, and that he assured us that this meant that there were now processes in place to mm. make sure that targets were properly identified, that they had good evidence that the individuals were responsible for whatever it was that they were being accused of, um, and that either the country that they were in was unable to capture the individual and bring them to, to mm. trial or whatever, um, or they were were in a region where it was difficult to gain access and therefore a drone strike was the best option. Mm. Um, you, so You mentioned that targeted killings are controversial. I mm. mean, the other question that springs immediately into my mind there is, well, are they legal? I mean, sending a drone into another territory, does that not <coughs> constitute a violation yeah. of another country's sovereignty, for example? Yeah. yeah. Well, the, the longest document that we have um, detailing drone policy and the rationale behind it is actually a legal document that was leaked from <laughs> the um, Justice Department. And this was a document that was put together when um, the Obama administration targeted and then killed uh, a, a Pentagon uh, strike uh, using a drone against um, Anwar Alawaki, who was a U.S. citizen, um, but an alleged Al Qaeda operative, um, was thought to be responsible for the attempted bombing of a, an airliner at the end of two thousand nine as it um, approached Detroit around Christmas time, um, and so this legal document was produced by the Justice Department to um, to give the legal backing. So the decision to target and kill this individual, uh, despite him being a U.S. citizen, and there were various aspects of of legality that were mm. argued within that document, and so uh, something like a sixty-page document that we now have, um, and so one of the uh, one of the justifications was the um, authorization to use military force that was put in place by the United States Congress after the September 11th, 2001 terrorist attacks, um, which effectively gives authority to the president to use force against any target that is um, about to undertake a terrorist mm -hmm. campaign against the United States. So Al-Qaeda and its operatives, all of its operatives, all of its associated groups are covered by this. So that was the, the principle um, Sort of, uh, piece of law mm. that the attacks were were based on, and from that flows the idea that the United States is at war with Al Qaeda, and mm. therefore wherever it's operating, it's mm. able to do this. Um, what's also argued in there is the point that I made earlier that there's if there is either agreement from whether explicit or tacit agreement from the government of the country in which the drone strike takes mm. place, um, that obviously could be seen as legitimising it. But there's also the, the view taken <coughs> that if the government and the security forces of a country <coughs> excuse me, uh, not don't have the capacity 
to act themselves to take out a target, mm. that the United States has the right to intervene and take that target out mm. itself. <clears throat> but it does raise all sorts of questions about sovereignty. Yeah. It's interesting that in, in Pakistan, for example, there, there has been quite a lot of public outcry about um, drone usage against targets that are, are within Pakistan. Um, but in private, and we know this partly from the uh, the documents that were released as a, through the WikiLeaks, mm. um, that in private certainly some very high-ranking Pakistani officials have admitted that this is really a good thing mm. because it's enabling them to deal with the problem that they have, mm. um, and that they're you know they they're quite pleased that the US is mm. is using um, this technology to mm. to try to eradicate certain threats that yeah. they they find threatening as well as the United States. I guess, find I guess drones. They seem emblematic to me of a larger shift in, in, in the role of the CIA since 9-11 from one of, of gatherer to hunter. Mm. So the traditional role yeah. of the CIA is to sit and cogitate quietly on the mm. world's problems, mm. perceived national security threats, but now it's going after terrorists. Yeah. And what I would put to you is, well, is taking people out necessarily the right thing for an intelligence agency mm. to be doing? Mm. Wouldn't it be better to, for example watch these people, leave them in their communities, mm. see who they mingle with, see mm-hmm. who they meet mm-hmm. with. Would it not be better to maybe send in a team to capture uh, a potential terrorist, yeah. to interrogate him, uh, extract more intelligence? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's that's one of the major criticisms of the, the targeted killing campaign is that um, you might eradicate a threat, but you may also... Um, eradicate with that any opportunity to discover intelligence that could lead to mm. further um, sort of exposing of individuals that are part of Al Qaeda or one of its associated groups, um, or, you know, or, or other plots that are being um, that are being planned. Um, so it it does seem in that respect to be almost a counterproductive approach. Um, but as I suggested earlier, I think that's partly a result of the difficulties that arose from the way that the CIA mm. was operating prior to um, Obama coming into office and the, the very strong criticisms of the, the kind of enhanced interrogation techniques that were being used, um, the rendition program, that these were seen as, as not being in keeping with, with the sort of values and principles that the United States is promoting mm. internationally. And Obama was very clear on taking office and, and actually the second day in office signed an executive order um, to end those techniques and those those, um, mm. those operations by the CIA. And they were very quickly put in place. Um, he also, of course, tried to close the Guantanamo mm. Detention Centre and that's proved much more difficult um, for political reasons mostly because uh, many members of Congress don't want these individuals moving say to the United States to some facility in the US itself they're quite happy to have them offshore um, so there have been a lot of difficulties with doing that and they can't simply be released because you know, even if they weren't radicalised mm. um, back in 2001 they probably are now um, so so he's, he's really had problems with that all of this kind of um, leads to a point where and I've, I've talked with um, various people at Human Rights Watch about this that the sense that Capturing is not really a very um, attractive proposition 
anymore mm. because it's associated with too many political problems. Mm. What do you do with the individual if you do capture them? Do you just hand them over to foreign authorities? Well, if you do that, you're more or less losing, you could be losing the information anyway, um, unless you're a very close relationship with them. Um, you know, do you, do you, if you capture them, where put do you take them? Prisons? You put them in secret prisons? <laughs> well, you can't anymore because there is no secret prisons anymore because they've all been closed down, we're told. So, um, you know, there are difficulties now with capture that maybe weren't there during the Bush years. Mm. And so... Um, the next step from that then is, well, if you can't capture them or it's difficult to capture them, and it may be difficult because of where they are and also the, the sort of cost evaluation. I mean, another reason why drones are so attractive is that they seem to diminish the cost to the US yeah. almost completely. I mean, they, they cost a lot of money to buy and, and to run, but you're not likely to get very many casualties on your side as a result of the use of unmanned aerial vehicles because mm. um, the drone operators are thousands of miles away in the United States. And the um, there are technical teams in the region, but they're again very removed from mm. the areas where the drones are actually operating. So, so you completely minimise casualties on your side, which is obviously yeah. seen as very beneficial um, in terms of public support for this, and they are very popular. Yeah, you don't want headstones in Arlington, do you? exactly. Um, so, but um, you know, it's, it 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 does mean that. They are more likely, it seems, to be used than, than not. Mm. But the consequence of that is you do end up losing information. You do end up killing mm. people instead of capturing them. Um, the administration officially says that it has a kill or capture policy, but it does feel an awful lot like a kill not capture policy mm. in reality. Mm. Um, there are very, very few mm. um, Al-Qaeda suspects who have been captured during the Obama administration, mm. far more have been killed. D does your research support the thesis that Obama's drone policy has been a success? However you measure mm. success, which is obviously very difficult. Is that the line that you would you would push in your, in, in, in your book? I think it's um, very much open to debate whether you would conclude it's been successful or not. Um, and I think it's interesting the way actually that the Obama administration has even talked about that success. So mm. within the same speech, Obama and also um, you know Brennan, head of the CIA now, who worked on the drones cam campaign a lot while he was in the White House, um, have made claims to the great success of the targeted killing campaign that it's um, taken out very many influential leaders of Al-Qaeda and various associated groups of Al-Qaeda, that it's broken their ability to um, to have successful plots against US targets or, or allied targets. Um, and you could argue, I suppose, that the, the fact that the overall number of, of uses of targeted killing has reduced over time. Um, that that's a measure as well that they have been successful because they don't need to do them as mm. often now. There haven't been major um, attacks on U.S. soil for for a long, long time. Mm. Um, where there have been <coughs> threats identified, like in Yemen last year, when um, diplomats were removed because there was a, a fear of imminent attack, <coughs> the number of drone strikes within Yemen went up considerably in that short period afterwards mm. and then the alert was taken off and those officials came back 
So again, that looked like a great success. You know, you use drones to end a, a, a terrorist threat. Um, but in those very same speeches where they're celebrating how successful these, these strikes have been, they're also then saying, but this is still a very dangerous enemy. We still have, you know, the mm. leadership is still there. The nature of it is it the, the kind of, you know, take off one head, another head rises yeah. up. Um, so what one of the major themes in my work is that what we're seeing here through this technology, because it is so attractive, because there's, there's almost a, a sort of seductive nature to the technology, the belief that it's very clean, that it's very effective, that it minimises casualties on your side, that only the bad guys get hit on the other side, mm. um, and that it almost seems to have limitless possibilities as to how you can utilise this technology, um, means that this idea that has been an idea that's been around for quite a long time, but but it seems even more likely now that this war against terrorism is turning into a real perpetual war. It's mm. turning into a war that will go on and on and on. Um, that there's almost no end to it. Um, because it's costless. It, it appears costless to the to the policymakers, to the American public. Um, public support for the use of drones for targeted killing is between about 65 to 70% mm. in the United States. Um, quite the reverse outside of the United States, where it's, it's you know, mm. in, in the, particularly in the areas that are on the receiving end, um, far less popular. But, um, but it's, you know, there are not that many people saying, we need to take control of this, we need to end this. Mm. Um, I guess what I'm hoping to do with my work is to, to raise questions about that, really challenge that mm. notion that this is such a clean, effective way of, of dealing with the problem of terrorism. Mm. Um, or whether it actually releases far more problems than it ends yeah. up resolving. Um, and maybe also to think about what does happen further down the line as more and more states start using drone technology um, when and they get weaponized. Well. And non-state actors yeah. as well, absolutely. Mm. Um, is there any evidence to suggest that drones and drone technology is falling into the hands of of folks who the United States wouldn't want this technology well, certainly other, into the hands yeah, of. Other, other states have started using drone technology in China I think has a drone program mm. um, and uh, and the you know I, th I think the Iranians made a big deal of having shot down a, um, mm. a, a reconnaissance drone wow. over Iran it's inevitable that, that this technology will spread mm. and it will spread probably quite rapidly um, and that's where there are some, you know, some concerns that maybe there needs to be some form of international controls over yeah. the development of these weapons, um, and that is complicated by the fact that they they have non-weaponized commercial uses. Mm. You know, drones is, is a big catch-all term really, mm. um, for a lot of different technology that's that's being used in this way. You can go to your, um, you know, your local kind of shopping mall and gadget stores will have mm. individual drones that you can buy as a Christmas present mm. um, fly around your neighbourhood it's got a little camera on it goes back to your smartphone um, 
Yeah, I don't know if you so, saw it at the weekend at the Etihad Football Stadium in a match between Manchester City mm, and Tottenham Hotspur. Mm, uh, a man was actually arrested. Yeah, uh, he was bailed. Uh, he's got a court appearance in, I think, a few weeks. Mm, but he was arrested for flying a drone yeah. over the football pitch, yeah. and he was arrested on the grounds that if that drone failed mm, and it, it would fell to the ground, yeah. poor Sergio Aguero, yeah. one of the best footballers in the world, would mm. be. Uh, Incapacitated. Yeah. Well, actually, even, even <laughs> a couple of weeks previously from that, there was a, a European Championship qualifier game uh, between Albania and Serbia, where some Albanian fans flew again a non-weaponized, obviously drone mm. across the field that had a mm. um, Greater Albania flag dangling from it. This was ripped down by one of the Serbian players. Massive fight broke out. Um, so. Yeah, the, you know, drones are becoming part of our everyday experience, as I said earlier on, mm. and some of that will end up being quite positive. Some of it yeah. is quite troubling, really. And, and maybe, maybe that's where we can conclude. I mean, wh- where is this all going to end? Are we going to wake up in ten years' time, pull open our curtains, and just see a, a fleet, an armada mm. of drones, policing our skies? Um, is, is that? I think is that it's entirely possible. It's entirely possible. I saw a wonderful cartoon recently of um, a kind of standard suburban home and there were you know, various drones flying around this home uh, delivering pizzas, delivering books, bringing the kids homework to them because they've been off school sick, you know, all of these possible mm. things that they could be used for and then um, down in the corner is uh, the radio's on and there's a report of you know, six people being killed by a drone in Yemen and it's, it's sort of what I, th- what I read that as meaning is that the more normalised drone technology becomes in our everyday lives, actually the more likely that they'll be used for violent purposes Mm. in the foreign policy of the United States and potentially other countries as well, because we'll become even less concerned about them. At the moment, drones are still quite an unusual technology. We we don't really understand them, we don't really know what they are, Mm. and we give all sorts of meanings to them. that are, that are still quite mystified. Um, if they become demystified, in some ways you might think that's quite a good thing because at least we'd be more aware of what their capabilities are. But if they become very commonplace, then perhaps we just won't think about the fact that, you know, we'll think of drones as things that bring you pizzas mm. uh, rather than things that bring death and destruction to yeah. people in other, other places far, far away that we don't need to worry yes. about. Um, so that, again, I think contributes to this notion that this technology is enabling war in ways that maybe other technologies in the past have attempted to do but never quite got to the point that this mm. this may be capable of doing. So that's why I'm, I'm quite fascinated by them and think that mm. they're worthy of more investigation and more understanding. Um, and some of that really is, is quite abstract, I think, to really think about what meanings are we giving to drones. Not so much what they actually are and what they can do, but what what we conceive of drones as doing and being capable of doing. And that if publics are doing that and if elites are doing that, that contributes to the way that they then get used as deliverers of policy, effectively. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, I think we need to be far more cognizant of that Mm. than we are at the moment. Otherwise, the future could look pretty scary, actually. Dystopian. Yeah. Well, clearly you're you're making hay while the sun shines. Uh, Dr. Trevor McCriskin, thank you ever so much. And uh, we look forward to to your book. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. 
and we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we will see you next month. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. Thank you.